Today we're looking at yet another topic where Jesus challenges us to become his 180 revolutionary countercultural followers. So listen as I read our text for the morning from Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Let's hear God's word. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Here ends the reading of scripture. My guess is that most, if not all of us, know someone who's gone through the pain of divorce. I've shared with you on other occasions that Valerie and I have three uh, children. Our oldest went through a divorce now a number of years ago. He met his former wife at Bethel University, Christian University, not far from here. And both, of course, were raised in solid Christian homes. They both professed saving faith, so those were not issues. Both families were very supportive of their marriage. Thirteen years and three children later, the marriage was over. And it felt like us as though somebody in the family had died. It was devastating. And so if you've gone through a divorce, and I know that some of you have, you probably have already discovered what studies point out, that you are likely to be impacted by your divorce for the rest of your life in ways that you could not have previously perhaps even imagined. If you have children, and 70% of those who get divorced do, you certainly uh, have become aware of the fact that no doubt you have ongoing conversation frequently with your ex over child visitation, over sick kids, over holiday schedules, uh, perhaps even trying to figure out why support payments are late or even non-existent. And every conversation with your former spouse takes you back to those previous experiences. The pain is relived again and again and again. And then there's the impact on children. Children of divorce, we're told, tend to have issues of insecurity. They oftentimes blame themselves for the breakup of their parents' marriage. And in addition to all of those things, um, have difficulty even in adulthood trusting other adults. All of that makes me wonder what the impact is going to be on our own grandchildren. So in light of all of that struggle, all of that pain and difficulty, it is so unfortunate that when people start to attend a church, the institutional church, in an effort to experience some healing and some hope and encouragement, what they get instead oftentimes tends to be rejection and judgment. But more about that later. Before looking at these critical verses from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, I want to share with you three introductory comments that will sort of provide us with the context and some guidelines concerning where we're going this morning. 
So here's the first of the three. Divorce is a controversial, very emotionally charged issue. You need to know that even evangelical Christians, scholars, pastors, church denominations, don't necessarily see eye to eye when it comes to the grounds for divorce, or for that matter, what constitutes, if there are legitimate reasons for remarriage, what those reasons might happen to be. So I hope our conversation today can take place in a context where there is some freedom of disagreement. You may disagree with me. Now you'll be wrong, <laughs> but you can disagree with me. Now obviously this is a difficult topic and it is very emotionally charged. Number two, this topic really has significance for all of us. Whether we're married, single, doesn't make any difference. It really impacts each and every one of us. It is certainly very relevant for those of you who are going through a painful marriage right now, all kinds of difficulties, and maybe you're left wondering, okay, what does God have to say in the Bible concerning this whole issue of divorce and the possibility of remarriage? So it impacts you in very direct ways. But I think it also impacts those of you who may have gone through the pain of divorce. Because like I said, almost every day you relive the pain and even my mentioning this issue this morning based upon the fact that this is what Jesus is addressing in our text takes you back and kind of makes you feel some of that pain perhaps all over again. So you're left wondering, what does God think about me? Is there any possibility of healing and hope for me? Does he even care about me? Well, as the song says, he's a good, good father. And he does care. He cares about your pain. He cares about everything that's going on in your life before divorce, after divorce, right down to the present time. And that will continue. His love and compassion will continue for you well into the future. But you know, this also impacts those of you who may be single or those of us who may be happily married. Hopefully, an examination of this topic today is going to give us more understanding and compassion, perhaps becoming then less harsh, insensitive, and judgmental toward divorced persons. I mean, after all, None of the people we know of who have gone through divorce ever approached their wedding day with a thought in mind that something created by God, this whole institution of marriage, created by God to bring joy and happiness and enrichment and spiritual growth into people's lives could ever deteriorate into something that would cause such disappointment and pain. So hopefully it will make all of us more sensitive and caring than perhaps we've been in the past. Okay, third introductory comment. This topic underscores for every one of us, single, married, young person, adult, you know, whatever your situation may be, Jesus' radical call to view marriage and divorce very differently than does our culture today. And that really is the bottom line here in the Sermon on the Mount. Everything that Jesus is talking about, he's concerned that we become his 180, revolutionary, countercultural followers. And that's true in this realm as well. I mean, the biblical world, the world of Jesus' day, was very much like ours today. 
People tended to view divorce as a quick and easy solution to their, their marital uh, problems. So instead, because of his amazing love for us, Jesus wants us to so value marriage that we enter it with the feeling, you know, we're in this for life. And therefore, the D word is not going to be part of our conversation. So if we have significant issues and differences, and it, that's going to happen, right? I mean, it happens in every marriage. The bottom line is we're going to work through those issues in the context of a loving, safe Christian environment and community like City Church. So, with those three guidelines in place, let's come now and examine what Jesus has to say on this topic as we look at the three areas that are on your sermon notes. Um, here's the first of the three. What did the Old Testament teach concerning this matter of divorce and remarriage? Now, we're beginning with the Old Testament because Jesus' primary concern in this text is to correct the misapplied understanding of this topic as promoted by the religious leaders of his day known as Pharisees and scribes. There's one primary text in the Old Testament that teaches about divorce, it's Deuteronomy 24. But before we look at those verses, I want to share with you their purpose. What is the pur is part of the law, the law of God. So what is the purpose of the, of the law concerning the matter of divorce? Well, this is what was, what was happening. So now we're going like 2,000 years before even Jesus back to the time of Moses, all right? Women didn't have any rights. They couldn't divorce their husbands, but husbands were divorcing their wives for all kinds of frivolous reasons. So women were kicked out of the house, oftentimes then with no economic support. Can you imagine the pain that that brought into the life of women and their children? I mean, it was a terrible situation. And so God instituted some legislation in a, in a context that had become chaotic, in order to provide a measure of guidelines and hope and encouragement, uh, especially for women and children. So with that in mind as the purpose of the law, let me read it and then we'll see what it's all about. Now this is an example of what is known as case law. You have the words, if, then, two ifs, two situations, if this happens, if this happens, then. So look for the ifs and look for the then, all right? Here we go. If a married man, a man marries, rather, a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. That's a key word. We're going to come back to it several times. Find some, something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if, after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, sends her from his house, or if he dies, all right, here's the then. Then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again until after she, because she's been defiled. This 
would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now this law really draws our attention to four key parts or principles. Number one, the intent here is to limit divorce to certain serious issues. All the ridiculous reasons for which men were divorcing their wives are sort of thrown out the door. So the law here said it had to be something significant. The husband finds something indecent. Now that word is never defined or described any place in the Old Testament, which led to some debate, and we'll see that shortly. But it had to be something serious, something indecent, and as other passages of scripture would indicate, there had to be at least two eyewitnesses to the indecency so that it could be addressed in a legal fashion. All right, number two, so the law protected women by limiting divorce to certain major causes. Number two, any man who divorced his wife had to give her this certificate of divorce. Can't simply on a whim or in a moment of frustration say, you're out of here, this marriage is over. He had to think about it. He had to make it very legal, had to write out this legal document called a certificate of divorce give it to her in the proper way, you know, we would have attorneys involved in everything today. Back then they had the elders of the, of the local village involved and all of that kind of stuff. So all of that would take place. What it tended to do was to formalize and make divorce more serious, okay? Number three, the law permitted the woman to remarry. I wanna stress that because there are some believers today who would say, no, the Bible never permits remarriage of a divorced person. Sorry, but it does say here, she could leave his house, and I'm just reading the text, become the wife of another man. That was permitted. And number four, if the wife remarried, husband number two doesn't like her, finds something indecent about her, divorces her, or if he dies, Husband number one can't get her back. So you say, what in the world is that all about? Well, technically it had to do with dowry issues, and I'm not going to get into all of that technical stuff today. But the purpose was really to make men think, wow, I mean, this is serious stuff. If I'm interested in divorcing this woman, I've got to realize this is over. I mean, I, this is a permanent decision. So that's what the Old Testament law taught. Number one, divorce permitted for a serious issue. Number two, have to write out their certificate, make it all legal. Number three, she could remarry. Number four, the first husband basically couldn't get her back. All right, so it provided order to this chaotic situation to provide a measure of protection for women and children. All right, what about the teaching of Jesus? Did you ever wonder why his instruction on the topic of divorce follows his teaching about adultery? Well, it could be that there's no connection because, I mean, the text doesn't say one way or the other, but we do know that historically, many men married women because of lust. And when the sexual buzz wore off, you know, the guy would find somebody who attracted him, turned him on, and, and divorce his wife and marry that person. And as long as you gave 
wife number one, this certificate of divorce, it was thought to be all legal. So you see it in the language of Jesus as he's quoting uh, the position here, you must give the certificate of divorce. Like that's the big thing, the only thing that God even cares about, just the legal stuff. So in the face of all of this travesty, Jesus is saying, my kingdom followers must so value the institution of marriage that they reject this legalized wife swapping practice and see it for what it is, an enterprise fueled by lust. It's dehumanizing to women. It's destructive to the family unit. And what you end up with it is an adulterous system where women are basically treated like garbage to be thrown out. So once again, we see that the Bible's teaching on the subject of divorce was not meant to add to people's pain, but rather to provide at least some measure of protection. Now, Matthew chapter 5 is not the only place in the Gospels where Jesus has some teaching on this topic. I want to address your attention to what's going on in Matthew 19, the other key text. Let me read the verses and then we'll see what's going on here, okay? So, Matthew 19 beginning at verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him, that is Jesus, to test him. Now notice their motive. They're out to trap Jesus. They want to set him up. What's, what's that all about? Well, they asked him this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, he takes them back to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the Creator made them male and female and said, and he quotes Genesis chapter 2, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now in summary, this is what this passage is really saying. The Pharisees are out to trap Jesus. You say, what's the trap? Well, there were two different schools of thought, two rabbinic schools, rabbis, conservative, liberal, okay? And so the debate centered around what does Deuteronomy 24 mean when it uses this word indecency? If he finds something indecent about her, he can divorce her. What's that all about? Well, one school called Shammai said it referred to a serious offense, something like sexual infidelity. The other school, Hillel, said it could refer to just about anything. A man could actually divorce his wife, according to the second school of thought, if she put too much salt on his food. Yeah, that's grounds for divorce. Or if she's shown in, seen in public without wearing her, her veil, her head covering. Oh. Or if she happens to say something disrespectful about her husband's parents. You know, these were the kinds of things. Or if she becomes kind of plain looking to him compared to some of the other women. So those were all justifiable reasons for a divorce. So they want to know, Jesus, where are you on this debate? So he responds, as John Stott summarizes it, first of all, 
If the Pharisees are here preoccupied with the grounds for divorce, you know, Jesus, which is it? One issue, many issues, what is this all about? Jesus here is concerned about the institution and the permanence of marriage. So, they want to know, how many causes? Where are you, Jesus? He takes them back to Genesis. He emphasizes the, the permanence of marriage. And he ends up by saying, therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. You see, divorce was certainly not God's original plan. He creates Adam and Eve and brings them together. And there is joy and, and satisfaction and enrichment and just a wonderful relationship. And then, of course, we turn the page to Genesis chapter 3, and we know what happened. Sin is introduced into the human race, and as a result, husbands and wives become selfish, very demanding, unfaithful, all of those things. Sin pollutes the relationship. Okay, fast forward the story to the coming of Christ and his redemption. Now Jesus longs that his followers, like me and like you, are viewing marriage and divorce issues from the context of our faith and God's amazing gift of forgiveness. So he doesn't want us to adopt the attitude, for example, that marriage is something you can just walk in and out of at will. No, it means that he wants couples who are even thinking about marriage. Are you thinking about marriage? Jesus would say to you this morning, you really need to know the other person and enter marriage with a feeling, you know, this is it. So if differences arise when they do, his desire, once again, is to get help from a trusted Christian counselor if necessary, but also work it out within the context of a Christian community like our church. So all of that was true. So here's Jesus, and he's basically saying, you know, instead of focusing on divorce and, and you know, all of those things. He wants us to focus on marriage and its permanence. So they come back and they ask Jesus a question. Verse 7. Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now it's interesting because the language here is similar to what we have back in our text in Matthew chapter 5. There Jesus quotes their position as saying, you have, you must, that's the key word, you must give out this certificate of divorce. That's the important thing. Here it's saying command. You know, Moses commanded this. You're not going to believe this, but this is nevertheless true. There were those who believed if a husband found something indecent in his wife, he was commanded by God to issue this certificate of divorce and send her away. Crazy. Now, is that what Deuteronomy 24 taught? Did God command this sort of thing? Well, of course not. So Jesus responds, verse 8, Moses permitted, not commanded, permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way in the beginning. Friends, divorce is something that God regrets. Why? Because he knows in many cases it only leads to a lot of pain. There are no winners. And so he says, it's a permission, not a command. All right, if the Pharisees then regarded divorce slightly, it's important that we see that Jesus regards it seriously. 
So he issues in both Matthew 5, and if you were to read a few verses more here in 19, you would say, you see that the same phrase is found, divorce is permitted on the ground of sexual immorality. That's what the term is. So of course, divorce on this ground permits remarriage. You say, well, wait a minute, the text doesn't say that. No, but that wasn't debated. Everybody back then, all of the different schools of thought, everybody recognized if there's a legitimate reason for divorce, it permits remarriage. So that's not an issue, so Jesus doesn't have to deal with it. All right? So to summarize, if the Pharisees were viewing divorce, you know, as something no big deal, Jesus is emphasizing the permanence of marriage he says that divorce is a concession. It is permitted only on the ground of sexual immorality. And divorce on this ground permits remarriage. Okay. But remarriage after divorce for any other reason, he says, is adultery. Whoa. Okay. Let's get to some application. I want to try to respond to five questions. Number one, what about those divorced before becoming Christians? You know, maybe, let's say, you, married, divorce, married, divorce, and you're just wondering, how does God view me? What does he want me to do? Do I have to go back to wife number one and try to fix things? I mean, maybe she's remarried and all of these issues are going on. I mean, how are we supposed to deal with all of this? And does he want me to remain single now for the rest of my life? Friends, we must never forget that we're all a bunch of sinners saved by grace. And whatever has happened before conversion in Christ has been wiped clean. All because of the grace of, of God to us. Now this includes divorce for any reason whatsoever prior to coming to Christ. So in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we read these words. Those who become Christians become new persons. They're not the same anymore, for the old life is gone and the new life has begun. It doesn't say you're a new person unless you go through divorce. It's not saying the divorce is the unpardonable sin. No, there's none of that here. You're a new person. And therefore, you have the right to remarry. Now, you can marry a Christ follower and establish a strong Christ-honoring relationship. You can do all of that. You can become a member of a city church. You can serve in any way whatsoever, okay, regardless of your past history. So that's what God would say to somebody divorced before becoming a Christian. Okay, question number two. What about, what, do, what should a Christian do who's married to an unbelieving partner? Well, this is an issue that Jesus did not have to address. Why not? He's dealing with you know, a Jewish culture. But after his resurrection, his ascension, and the mission of the church is established to go out and to proclaim Christ, the gospel, throughout the Roman Empire, what happened? Gentiles, out of their raw paganism, came to saving faith. So now you have a, a, a situation developed that wasn't part of the equation before. Namely, you've got maybe one spouse who becomes a Christian, but not the other. Now what are you supposed to do? 
Well, fortunately, Paul takes up this issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 15. This is what he says. To the rest I say, I not the Lord. Now what does that mean? I can't quote Jesus because he never addressed this issue. But he is still writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is the word of God to us. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to, to live with her, she must not divorce him. Why not? Well, because the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. Now, she's, the husband is still an unbeliever. You see that language here? Unbelieving husband. But in some sense, and we'll come back to this, he's sanctified through the wife. The unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. And the kids, what about them? Well, otherwise your children would be unclean if there had been divorce, but as it is, they're holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The, husband, the brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So what is this all about? Well, again, it's a new situation Jesus didn't have to address. The ideal is stay married. Your, your spouse is not a Christian, stay married. Why? Because there are benefits that that non-Christian spouse and the children are experiencing by virtue of the fact one family member loves Jesus. And that's what the word sanctified or holy means here. It means that they're set apart. There are all kinds of benefits that they're experiencing, okay? But if the non-Christian says, you know what, you're different. I don't like you anymore. I don't like all of this Jesus business and God and church and Christianity. You've changed and I don't think for the better. I'm out of here. Leaves. Now the leaving in view is not to take a walk around the park. The leaving in view is permanent. The marriage is over. What then? Well, Paul adds the brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. What does that mean? Well, he uses the same word bound in verse 39. There he talks about a Christian man, Christian woman, they're married, one of them dies. The partner who's still very much alive is not bound anymore and can remarry. So presumably that's what not bound means here, okay? So in addition to the reason for divorce and remarriage given by Jesus, namely sexual immorality, Paul here is adding a second desertion because of one's Christian faith. Friends, that's the way this passage has been understood by Christians well back into the 1600s, the Reformation, their documents, the confessions of faith, all of that draw attention to this. Okay, number three. What about a Christian who is living in an intolerable situation. Let's just say for the sake of illustration, you have a man and a woman married, they're members of city church. They both confess faith in Jesus Christ. But we find out after a while that the wife is a punching bag for this guy, or the kids are. There's abuse going on, verbally, maybe sexually, physically, all kinds of painful issues are going on. 
What happens now? Well, what Jesus taught doesn't apply. There's been no um, immorality or unfaithfulness. He's still married to this woman. What Paul wrote doesn't apply. There's no desertion by the unbelieving partner. They're both confessing Christ. So what do we do in this instance? Could things ever get so bad where as a Christian community, the pastors of this church or the leadership board would say, you need to separate. You need maybe even to get a divorce. And if we would ever go to that extent, until this person hopefully would get his act together and get the counseling and rebuild his life, but would we ever, if there is a divorce, say that this woman can now remarry? And is there a chapter and verse that supports that? Yes and no. No, there is no passage that directly says if you're in an abusive situation as a Christian, you can divorce your spouse. But Ephesians chapter 5 very clearly teaches us that a husband and wife are to be demonstrating mutual submission and servanthood. And it tells husbands they are obligated to serve their wives, to cherish them, to nurture them, to encourage them. That's what they agreed to at the time of their wedding. They stood before probably a pastor, you know, and family and friends, and the husband said, I will be faithful to you, I will love and comfort you, and so on and so forth, all of those vows. So he has violated his covenant. And so, yes, things might so deteriorate to a point where we might say to a, the other person, you need to separate here for your own safety and well-being and that of your children, or possibly even divorce and remarry. Now, I'm not saying that God approves of divorce, but I am saying that sometimes he disapproves of its alternatives even more. So... What about, question four, what about Christians who get a divorce and for reasons other than what the Bible permits, remarry? Jesus calls your behavior adultery. And if that's true of any of us, we need to acknowledge our remarriage as sin. But you know, even divorce and remarriage for reasons other than what the Bible permits are not unforgivable. God is not asking you to try to figure out how do I straighten out the mess of my past. He assures us that what he forgives stands forgiven. And so for the rest of us as a church, we need to remember that we're just, as I said earlier, sinners saved by grace. And we're people, though divorce and remarriage for reasons other than what scripture allows, if they sincerely acknowledge and confess their sin, they must be given full, unqualified acceptance. Such people are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They're eligible for membership and to minister and to serve in this body. So praise God for a gospel that brings healing. Now, I realize people could take advantage of this. People could get married, get divorced without biblical support, remarry and say, God, forgive me, and just blow the whole thing off. That can happen. But you know, I'll, I'll just speak personally here. I would rather err on the side of grace and let God judge them and figure the whole thing out. All right, one more question. 
What are the takeaways for us from what Jesus is saying? The bottom line, friends, is that the takeaway for all of us, whatever your situation may be, is that he wants us to think about marriage and divorce very differently from our culture. Jesus wants us to have healthy marriages and to view marriage as a lifelong commitment. So, if you're married, things are great, wonderful, keep it up. Whatever you're doing, it's working, okay? But I have some, you know, in light of what we learned last week from Jesus in the earlier verses, namely that we're all susceptible to failure, what do you need to do to make sure you're, you're continuing to build a strong marriage? I wouldn't challenge you to get involved, number one, in a growth group as a couple, where you are exchanging biblical truth and seeking to apply it to one another's lives. Secondly, agree that every year, somehow, in person, online, whatever, we're going to attend a marriage enrichment seminar to strengthen our marriage. And number three, you're going to continue to date to make your marriage a priority. You're gonna date and you're gonna communicate, 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 and when you're done all of with that, communicate, okay? That's what you need to do. Now number two, if you're married and you're thinking about divorce, why not sit down with some trusted Christian friends who know scripture, love you, and can work with you through this very painful ordeal? Number three, this says the singles, Wow, make sure that the person you want to marry gives evidence of loving God and sharing your values. Why? If you think of, of your life as a pie with different slices, you know, here's the work slice and here's recreation slice and friends and all of these. Faith in Christ is not a slice of the pie. It's the whole pie. Your, your faith in Jesus is meant to impact every area of your marriage, every area of your work, your play, everything you do. So how in a, why would you even want to seriously date somebody, let alone contemplate marriage, with somebody who doesn't share in those convictions? Absolutely, you need to make sure that the person you're thinking of marrying is a Christ follower along with you. And then I think this all says to us as a church, let's emphasize the permanence and the importance of marriage while extending lots of grace and support to those impacted by divorce. So I wanna end the teaching time today by praying for each and every one of you, regardless of your situation, I'm gonna ask you to stand for a special time of prayer. Let's stand together. And let's pray. Father, these are difficult times for many of us. And so we pray that all the marriages represented here today will be Christ-centered, that problems will be addressed in ways that bring healing, that husbands and wives will listen to each other and serve each other well. Lord, we pray for single parents. May you come alongside those who fall into this group and Lord give them the energy the wisdom for each and every challenge that comes their way may their children be cooperative may you guide these parents so that they sense that with you 
that you are there caring for them every step of the way, that they're never alone. Father, others may not be going through serious problems, but maybe, maybe emotionally they're drifting apart. And so we pray for the protection, the growth of all marriages, so that healthy marriages would remain strong and that areas that need attention will become a priority. Lord, we pray for those going through a separation or divorce right now. May you surround them with your love. May you give them peace and clear direction. And may they find this church to be a community that provides support and encouragement. And then, Lord, we pray for those who have gone through a divorce. May they find this to be a church that emphasizes the importance of marriage, but that extends lots of grace and acceptance to those who want to rebuild their lives and faithfully follow Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.